There is no doubt that we are living in incredibly uncertain times. If you look back over recent years from the global financial crisis in 2008 as it hit us, to the EU referendum in 2016 and all that's followed, concerns about our economic future have been at the forefront of the news. One article in The Guardian read this way, Sterling has plunged whenever the Prime Minister has talked up the chance of a no-deal Brexit and has been driven back up again whenever there are any signals of progress towards an agreement with Brussels. Likewise, an article published in The Telegraph this week noted that recent political events means financial markets can expect a roller coaster ride. With every bit of good news, followed by every bit of bad news, followed by some more good news, the economy is one subject which can make your head spin. What has become clearer to us in the last few years than perhaps for any previous generation is that the economy is unreliable. Simplistically put, the economy is about the flow of money, about in and out, about income and expenditure. I want to talk to you today about another economy, an altogether more inspiring economy, which has the potential to bring us a freedom that many of us have not yet known to the measure I believe that God would want us to know it. The economy of grace, the inflow and the outflow of grace. Grace is a major theme in the New Testament. The word appears well over a hundred times. For instance, the Apostle John talks about Jesus being full of grace. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace. Paul in Ephesians talks about the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. In his first letter to Timothy, he talks about God's grace being poured out abundantly. And in Romans, about God's grace overflowing. We're the recipients of God's amazing grace. What is grace? It is unearned favor, is unmerited favor beyond anything that we deserve. God is extravagantly generous and his kindness is absolutely amazing. We're going to talk this morning and in two weeks time about the overflow of grace by looking at two passages in Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 8 today and chapter 9 in two weeks time. These chapters were written during uh, an economic crisis in Jerusalem, where the original uh, church 2,000 years ago had begun. Crops had failed and Christians were persecuted. Their businesses boycotted and they were incredibly impoverished. And in response, the Apostle Paul invites various churches, including the church in Corinth, to contribute to meeting that need. These passages are about generous giving. But Paul never uses the word money. He uses the word grace very deliberately. And I've been struck again by the inseparable connection between grace and giving. That giving is not to be out of compulsion. That it's not about certain percentages in obedience to a law. It has nothing to do with wealth or amounts. It has everything to do with our hearts and our comprehension of God's gracious economy. So this is Paul 
If you have a Bible, you could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is Paul writing to one church, the church in Corinth, a very, very well-resourced church. He's asking them to give generously to the church in Jerusalem, which is really in trouble. And as Paul encourages the Corinthians to give, he's comparing them to another church, which is very poorly resourced, the church in Macedonia. So this is 2 Corinthians 8, and it's quite a chunk I'm going to read you, beginning at verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they pleaded with us, urgently pleaded with us, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they went beyond our expectations. Having given themselves first of all to the Lord, they gave themselves by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich." And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. The word grace appears four times in just these 11 verses, and that's very deliberate. Paul is saying that giving for Christians is different from any other sort of giving. And he wants us to notice a number of things. Firstly, that extraordinary giving is an overflow. It's the overflow of grace. When we think about giving, whether it's giving our time or our service or our money or anything else, we should see it as an outworking of the grace that we have received. And so we see in verse 1, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. The grace that God has given. He doesn't say, we want you to know what incredible Christians there are in Macedonia. You know, wonderful, selfless people. This is not a matter of some people having a naturally generous temperament or people who are just servants, who are perhaps especially good or especially noble people. But just as it is the case with any achievement in the Christian life, the ability to give generously flows from the grace that God has given us. Being caught up in this economy, the economy of grace, getting in the flow of grace has many similarities with whitewater rafting. A number of years ago, I went down to Home Pierpoint with some of the guys on the staff here uh, where there's a white water course used by the Olympic team for their training. And we were really excited about it. We got there. We got our wetsuits on, our helmets on, stood on the side of the bank with our oars looking keen, ready to go. But we learned that it's one thing 
to watch from the safety of the bank or even to get in the raft and then paddle near the edge where it's all calm. It's another thing to get in the flow of the water and be taken by its power and use one's limited skill to navigate the river. It's an adventure. There were some pretty hairy moments, a few minor injuries, some swam part of the way, but it was so worth it. By the time we got through the course, we had forgotten all the bruises, the scary moments. We were absolutely pumped. We just coughed up the water we'd inhaled and quickly carried this heavy boat up as many times as they would let us do. There is an exhilaration in giving, which we can only experience when we actually leave the safety of the bank and get caught up in the flow. Secondly, generosity proves the depth of grace in a church or in the life of an individual follower of Jesus. We find in verse 2 here, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The Macedonians were in the midst of what Paul describes as a very severe trial. The Romans had taken over most of the profitable industries and they were desperately poor, partly because of the persecution that they were experiencing. And yet we see that their overflowing joy, their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity. One of the signs that a person's life is truly touched by the grace of God is that a naturally selfish person, which we all are by nature, becomes a generous person. Generosity wells up as we are filled with God's grace. When we comprehend the enormity of what we've received from God, we tend to become more and more like him. Let's read on verse 3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Many of us are generous. Some of you are really generous. Giving uh, faithfully to the Lord's work, maybe to other things on top of that. But it's probably fair to say that most of us give from a place that couldn't be described as a very severe trial or extreme poverty. And while many give less than they're able and some give as much as they're able, there will be very few of us who give beyond our ability. Now, what's the normal reaction when money is tight, when the economy is unstable, when there's, well, it's fear, often fear. We tend, in difficult times like that, to hold on tighter to what makes us feel secure. It's not normal to open our hands wider and give freely when we are not sure about how things are going to go. We're not sure whether we can spare it. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, recalls watching a family of swallows up in a tree, a mother and her three babies, being given a lesson in flying. And one by one, she picked the babies up out of the nest and she put them on this branch. Now, Eugene stood and watched as the first bird was holding tightly to the branch and the mother started pecking at it until this little bird fell, fell like a stone before realizing, hey, I've got wings, and suddenly swooped up and began to fly. Incredible freedom. And, uh, you know, as it left the safety of the branch, it discovered this amazing ability that he didn't know he had. He could fly. 
And wow, could he fly because he was a swallow. A while back, a photographer caught a swallow entering a barn where its nest was, approaching the two-inch gap between the locked door and the doorframe at 35 miles an hour, tucking its wings up vertically, and then at the exact moment it hits the gap, it drops one wing vertically downwards and whistles through, missing the steel doorframe by millimeters. Imagine being able to fly like that. And then... Baby bird number two, peck, peck, pushes it off. And then it's number three's turn. Eugene observed, this baby bird is not getting off this branch. Even though this little bird has seen its siblings let go and fly, it's not willing to take the risk itself. This little bird is clinging on for dear life, chirping, mommy, mommy, leave me alone. Don't make me jump. And mommy is just determined, baby bird, you are going to get off this branch and she went on pecking it and shoving it until she practically had to pick up the bird and throw it any of you relating this baby bird is a picture of you and me we face risk it's scary to give we face fear of not having not coping our natural response is to tighten our grip on what we think will keep us safe. We dig our little claws in and we're not releasing our grip. What we forget is that like the mother bird, our loving father has something much more in store for us than holding on to a little branch or holding on to our money. The ability to fly and fly with extraordinary agility. His grace is there, you know, it is grace that caused the Macedonians, believers, to live so freely. And God wants us to know and experience the exhilaration of trusting ourselves to his care and the blessings which spring from that place. When we contemplate giving, whether we're giving from relative wealth or perhaps relative poverty, each of us is going to face tests and challenges of various sorts, but I really would encourage you not to be robbed of the experience and joy of generosity uh, because you think that generosity is reserved for those who have enough money to give away. Somehow that generosity is for the wealthy, and that's not really me. For a couple of seasons in the last 36 years that Debbie and I have been married, we have found ourselves living on a very low income, in many ways too low to be realistically able to give uh, very much away. For pretty much all that time, we've elected to give at least a tenth of our income to the Lord, to the local church, and other things on top, trusting him to make the 90% stretch further than the 100% would have in our own strength. And the Lord's always been faithful in sustaining us. There were times when we really did feel the pinch, and on a few occasions when we just didn't know how we were going to survive, we chose to give more, actually some extra money away. We just would get an envelope and put some money in it and go and find someone in more need than ourselves and give on top of what we had already planned. We didn't, haven't heard this talk. We didn't know about the economy of grace. We just instinctively cast ourselves on God's economy of grace, receiving and giving. We're going to clutch onto the thing which will make us feel most secure, which in that moment was not the little bit of money we had. As Paul taught Timothy, our hope isn't in wealth, which is so uncertain, but in God who richly provides us with everything we need. 
In times of economic challenge, instead of holding on tighter to what makes us feel secure, holding tighter onto the Lord and letting go of other things is actually a much more secure option. As Paul continues, he uses giving as a measure. He says you can tell a lot about yourself if you just look at your giving. A test of their love. He says in verse 8, I'm not commanding you. Giving is not a should and an ought and a law for Christians, but it's evidence of the grace that we've received. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others, the others being the Macedonian churches who were so wonderfully demonstrating God's grace in their lives. In verse 24, he says this, Therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it, the proof of your love. You've received so much grace. Now let's see to what extent that grace is evidenced in your life. Billy Graham once incisively said this, Our checkbook is a theological document. It tells you what you believe in. Most of us don't use checkbooks anymore, but I hope you'll understand what he means. If we look back through our bank statements, if we have a bank account, it will be evidence of what is most important in our lives. You can just look, what is most important? Someone I read said, what we do with our money, perhaps more than any other aspect of our lives, is a test of the depth of our discipleship and our experience of grace. And then Paul uses Jesus and his giving as an example. This is what love looks like. This is what giving looks like. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. No one was ever richer than Jesus, and no one ever gave more than Jesus did. No one became poorer than Jesus. He humbled himself to death, even, even death on a cross. And no one ever makes people richer than Jesus does. Not necessarily rich financially, but as the recipients of his extravagant giving, our lives are caught up in the flow of this amazing grace. Grace radically affects attitude, thirdly. It says in verse 2, their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. Entirely on their own, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Despite their financial difficulties, there was, they were so in touch with the grace of God that they urgently pleaded with Paul to be allowed to give with what he called rich generosity. Wow, that is an incredible attitude. An attitude revolutionized by their experience of grace. And Paul encourages the Corinthian church to keep the attitude to giving, which they themselves had shown in the past, just dipping into the first two verses of the next chapter. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you guys were ready to give. It doesn't say that, but more or less. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. It was the Corinthian church's initial eagerness and enthusiasm which had stirred the Macedonians to give so sacrificially. When grace is really, really flowing, it overflows in joy. 
with an eagerness to help and enthusiasm and eager willingness to give, which in turn, which turns attitude into action. And verse 10, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So extraordinary giving is the overflow of grace. Generosity, and the observation of it is a test. It actually proves the depth of your experience of grace. And grace radically affects attitude. And then Paul exhorts us to excel in this grace, the grace of giving. We know from other parts of Paul's letters to the Corinthians that they were an incredibly best blessed church. If we look at the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, his first letter, beginning in verse uh, 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. And so, you know, they're really, really a very, very blessed church. You do not lack, he says, any spiritual gift. And here Paul says, given that level of grace which has so enriched you as a church, I want you to excel in this grace of giving. This is verse 7. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, he's repeating the things he's already described of this incredible church, in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. As a church, the Corinthians were experiencing abundance just in so many ways. Spiritual gifts were flowing freely. People were getting healed. People were coming to faith. They were hugely blessed. They were a hugely well-resourced church. A bit like this church. Whether you feel your own personal life is like that or not, the truth is if you've stopped to really count your blessings you will realize that the grace of God is abundantly, abundantly poured into your life as it is mine. And Paul is saying, don't let it stop there. The economy is not just income. It needs to move. Let it overflow. In the last 15 years, I've had the opportunity to visit the Middle East on two occasions. And on each time, I've spent a few hours by one of the two inland seas in the area. And they are as different as it is possible to get from each other. The Dead Sea is called dead for a reason. That is, nothing lives in it. There are no fish and there are no plants. And that's because the salt content is over 30%. So it's nine times saltier than the Mediterranean. It is so dense that people bob around on the surface like corks. It would be no fun scuba diving in the Dead Sea because firstly, you'd have a really difficult job trying to sink. But secondly, there's just nothing to see under the water except for salt deposits and mud. Mud, which you can rub all over your body. You can buy in expensive health spas, but nevertheless, mud. Basically, the Dead Sea has no life, just a load of salt and mud. The other sea is the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater lake, and it is full of life. There are currently 18 different types of fish in the lake, including these tilapia. 
Why is one lake teeming with life and the other dead? It's actually very simple. Water flows into both from the mountains around them. But the River Jordan, that very thin blue line you may just be able to make out on the photo, flows out of one of them. It flows out of the Sea of Galilee and into the Dead Sea. It's a nothing at all flows out of the Dead Sea. It's a recipient of fresh water, but it has no outlet. You can see the parallel. Grace flows into our lives, lavished upon us. We are the beneficiaries of the incomparable richness of his grace, poured out on us abundantly. But I want to just gently ask the challenging question this morning. Is that grace overflowing? Is that abundance poured out from our lives as well as into our lives? Are we teeming with life or might we in some ways be dead? Are we tapping into God's economy of grace, of receiving and giving, receiving and giving, or are we just receiving? Rowan Williams, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, said this, Giving is more than simply giving something back to God, calculating what amount or even percentage is acceptable. Giving is being caught up in the flow of God's gracious giving, being caught up in grace. Now, you might say, well, I understand what you're saying. And I actually do want to do this. I I do want to, uh, to live generously, but I am basically fearful. I'm like that baby bird. That was a great picture of me. If I'm honest, I'm, I'm also basically selfish. I find giving hard. So how might we answer the question, how do we get into a place of this grace flowing? Well, verse 5 is the key to the passage. They went beyond our expectations, having given themselves, first of all, to the Lord. The only explanation for the extraordinary generosity the Macedonians uh, were showing was that they'd first given themselves unreservedly to God. Giving simply flowed out of that place of complete surrender and commitment. If we give ourselves unreservedly to God, generosity is the natural outflow of what he pours into our lives. It's natural. Later in the letter, Paul says to the Corinthians, what I want is not your possessions, but you. And that's what God would say to each and every one of us this morning. What I want is not your possessions, but you. This is not about amounts of pounds and pence. It's about us giving ourselves to God, fully surrendering our lives to him. If we haven't done that, if we haven't given ourselves fully to God, then every talk we hear on the subject of giving and every pound we part with will be a struggle. I got this story from the internet and I'm assuming that it is, as it says, a true story about a nine-year-old boy who lived in a poor rural area in Tennessee. So I'm going to read it pretty much word for word as it was written there. A church had a bus ministry, and on meeting the boy, the bus pastor uh, asked, have you ever heard the greatest love story ever told? He proceeded then to share the gospel with this little nine-year-old boy. 
and asked if he wanted to receive the new life, uh, receive new life from God. And the youngster exclaimed, you bet. So the lad invited Jesus into his heart and received the free gift of salvation. The bus pastor asked if he would like to join the other children on the bus and come to church the next morning. Sure, the nine-year-old replied. This boy had never been to church before. And during the service, just sat there, clueless as to what was going on. A few minutes into the service, these tall, unhappy guys walked down to the front and picked up some wooden plates. One of the men prayed, and the kid, with utter fascination, watched them walk up and down the aisles. He still didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden, like a bolt of lightning, he realized that people must be giving money to Jesus. He then reflected on the free gift of life he had received just 24 hours earlier. He immediately searched his pockets front and back and couldn't find a thing to give Jesus. By this time, the offering plate was being passed down his row, and with a broken heart, he just grabbed the plate and held on to it. He finally let it go and watched it pass on down the row. His eyes remained glued on the plate as it was passed back and forth, back and forth, all the way to the rear of the sanctuary. Then he had an idea. This little nine-year-old boy in front of God and everybody got up out of his seat. He walked about eight rows back, grabbed the usher by the coat and asked to hold the plate one more time. Then he did the most astounding thing. He took the plate sat it on the carpeted church floor and stepped into the center of it. As he stood there, he lifted his little head up and said, Jesus, I don't have anything to give you today, but just me. I give you me. If we choose to give ourselves... The issue of how much we give from our resources really does become secondary. It's all his. We've received everything from him. It's of his own that we give him. It's all his. So now it's just a question of how much the Lord would have us live on and how much he would invite us to part with. One reason why many people don't get their giving sorted out is not because they are necessarily resistant to God, but often simply because they don't get round to it. And so there are forms on seats today, and they're not there to pressurize you. They, they are there simply because many of you today may want to make a change. And having a giving form helps to do that. So if you want to fill one in, you can do so today. You can pop it in one of the boxes by the exits. Or if you'd rather, uh, please just take it home. Maybe if you're married or whatever, you can talk to your spouse. Just pray about it. Think about what you might fill in on that form. Or you can uh, start or change an existing standing order with your bank online. And the church's bank details are on that form. It would also be helpful if you do that online just to let the finance department know. Just email them at giving at trentvineyard.org. And alternatively, you can go to the website or this link, trentvineyard.org forward slash give, where you can set up a standing order online and also find the church's bank details. I really would encourage you to review your giving. Ask the Lord whether he wants you to start, start being committed financially to this church if you're not yet doing so. Or to increase the amount that you're already giving. And if you decide that is what you want to do, take some action. You know, turn that attitude, that eagerness 
into actual action and do it this week if possible because if the form or the decision gets buried under a pile of papers or just forgotten in the pace of life you may never get round to it whether you are wealthy or you perceive yourself to be in poverty the vital thing to understand today is this it is all about grace not law not should not ought there's no condemnation there's not rules and percentages it is the invitation of grace of receiving and giving of receiving and giving extraordinary giving is the overflow of grace it proves the depth it's a test in our lives the depth of the grace that we have received it changes our attitudes and so as paul encouraged the corinthian church i'm encouraging you to excel in this gift of giving by first giving ourselves unreservedly to god should we stand